Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to another episode of Talk Eastern Europe, a podcast dedicated to Central and Eastern Europe and the official podcast of the new Eastern Europe magazine. This is episode 130. My name is Agnieszka Widłaszewska and with me is the other co-host of the podcast, Adam Reichardt. Hello, Adam. Hello, Aga. Hello, listeners. Great to have you back on another important episode of the podcast. Indeed, indeed. I think, I hope our listeners will really enjoy this one because we will be discussing a topic which I think always kind of raises a lot of interest and yes. when you hear about it it's like oh what's happening with that but we'll we'll get to what the actual topic is <laughs> i'm just going to start with my disclaimer because now i have it in my notes so it's easy to remember <laughs> just bear in mind that nothing that i say on this podcast represents the interests and opinions of the institution that i work for and now we can move on to more interesting things than that. That's right. And uh, Aga, maybe before we move on, I'll give also a little disclaimer uh, for those of you who are out there listening to us, whether this is your first episode of Talk Eastern Europe or whether this is your uh, 130th, as it is for us, episode of Talk Eastern Europe. We do have a Patreon page. And if you like listening and you like the issues that we cover and you like the analysis that we provide and the guests that we invite, please do consider supporting us uh, on Patreon. Uh, we have plans that start at uh, just $2 a month, uh, and we will get into some, some of the benefits uh, at the later part of this episode, but check out our Patreon page. Indeed, indeed. Please go and support us. We will love you for that. Yes. Uh, yeah, but anyhow, maybe before we get to the main topic of our episode this week, there's been, as always, some developments in our region of interest because there's always some developments and sadly, usually they are not very happy and positive, but we need to talk about them nonetheless. So I don't know if Adam, you maybe have been watching something in particular these past few days. Yeah, I mean, our region is never boring, right? Uh, so yeah. there's always uh, something going on. Of course, the war, if we're looking at uh, the war uh, in Ukraine, um, the, most of the news right now is still about the battle for Bakhmut. Uh, and it's from what we can see from the reports and from what we're hearing from people in, in Ukraine that it's quite, uh, quite a very difficult battle um, and uh, really challenging for both sides. Uh, we saw that uh, the Ukrainians have, Ukrainians have claimed that the Russians have had quite significant losses over the last several days in terms of of uh, their resources and people in, in trying to take Bakhmut. But at the same time, it sounds like Ukrainians possibly are preparing for uh, for a strategic withdrawal of Bakhmut, which will eventually lead into uh, Russia's finally taking of Bakhmut. I think we should re remind our listeners that this battle for this city, which is, you know, generally speaking, most experts say is not a strategic town. However, it does uh, does provide Russia with a, a needed win uh, or some sort of victory uh, in this really uh, long drawn out battle uh, and the war, of course, uh, that Bakhmut, the battle began already back in May uh, of 2022. So we're, you know, almost a year in into the battle for this uh, for this city. Uh, which is largely symbolic, but at the same time, I think would uh, would be important for both sides uh, to claim victory if they manage to either defend it uh, from the Ukrainian standpoint or from the Russians to, to take it from from their standpoint. And in in Bakhmut, uh, I think we will get into this later because it's also related directly to our topic. But uh, there are not just the Russian forces fighting there, but also uh, forces from the paramilitary group, uh, which is known as Wagner Group, and. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of dynamics that are involved there, and uh, I think we'll talk a bit about about that more later. Yeah, I think indeed it's a it's a topic that I think it, it's it's just a difficult. I'm sure it's a very difficult situation for Ukraine because, like you said, maybe on the one hand, Bakhmut is not 
so important strategically, or at least this is what, what people have been saying. I'm not yeah. an expert in military strategy. But at the same time, if you have already invested so much time and, and so many resources and especially people, the lives and you know the efforts of your soldiers, then it's it's always a tricky decision to make. When do you retreat or you know, do you decide to keep on fighting? And then what is the effect of that, right? So, uh, well, I mean, we I think we should just uh, pay attention to what will be happening there. Yeah, and I mean, it's really hard to imagine uh, what it's like on the ground. Uh, and uh, we hear from some people who are, you know, doing humanitarian aid into Bakhmut. Uh, most of that has stopped at the moment because it's so dangerous. But there are still people who live in the city, which is really hard to imagine. Uh, and uh, that they refuse to leave for whatever reason. Some say they're just too old to leave. Some say this is their city. They don't want to leave the city. There are other reasons as well. But um, but uh, it's you know this is really probably the the most uh, probably the deadliest place right now uh, on the planet is is Bakhmut. So it's really yeah really difficult situation. And speaking of other places which are in a very difficult position and where people seem to be cut off from the world and the resources that they need. There is also the, we have the ongoing blockade of the Lachin Corridor, which is the corridor that links Armenia to Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh, as it would be called in Armenia. Uh, so basically it's the, as, as our listeners probably remember, the situation is that now after the war of 2020, Azerbaijan, in a way, regained some of the yes. territories in the Nagorno-Karabakh region, but there is still part of the region that considers itself independent, and but it's in a way also linked to Armenia. In a way, there's there's like this relationship between Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia, right? And so there is this corridor which was the only way for them to be somewhat linked. Otherwise, Nagorno-Karabakh is surrounded by Azerbaijan. And in December of last year, there's there was a group of Azerbaijani citizens who claimed to be eco-activists who blocked this corridor, essentially cutting off the inhabitants of Nagorno-Karabakh in terms of, yeah, again, resources, humanitarian aid, uh, food, everything, just any, any supplies. And this blockade has been ongoing since then. There are some deliveries of supplies done via the Russian peacekeeping contingent that is in the region, again, following yep. this 2020 war. And I believe some international organizations have also sometimes access in terms of providing humanitarian aid. But it's a very difficult situation. It seems that well, the, the Russia, the Russian contingent doesn't seem to react much to what is happening, and well, <laughs> they were meant to be there to keep the peace, but uh, it seems that in this particular instance, they decided that well, let's just keep this blockade for however long. So it's yeah, it's just a very difficult position, I'm sure, especially for the people who who live in the region. There's also some people who left Nagorno-Karabakh just for to. I don't know, to do something elsewhere, for example, see a doctor or go shopping or whatever, because this is how it used to be before the blockade. And they are stuck on the other side of the corridor, so they cannot go back home, which is also a very bizarre and dangerous position to be in. So yeah. this has been ongoing and it doesn't seem like there's any, for now, any possibility to end this blockade. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of those issues that... Uh, is largely not being covered by international media and something that we need to look at, I think, a little bit more. Uh, the conflict there, uh, while it's, you know, under some sort of peace agreement, which was Russian brokered back in 2020, as you mentioned, Russia seems to be a little preoccupied somewhere else right now. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, clashes, there are clashes that do that do break out. And we just read over the weekend that there were uh, some clashes between uh, forces for Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijani forces. And uh, like, several people were reported killed in these clashes. Uh, and it's a quite a complicated situation, as you already started explaining, uh, Aga. So I think what we have to do is keep an eye on it. And we'll try to maybe we'll bring uh, bring some experts on uh, in in a very uh, soon episode and discuss this situation, which uh, definitely requires more attention and understanding, uh, because this is also an important uh, kind of nexus point in the geopolitical uh, chessboard, let's say, of, of of our region, of 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 the region of the Eastern Partnership countries and Eastern Europe. 
but also you know we have Turkey and Iran uh, in that uh, in that vicinity as well. So there's a lot uh, to to try to unpack and to try to understand. And let's let's uh, maybe make a commitment to do this in the future. Absolutely. So we have something more or less in the works, but uh, I'm sure our <laughs> listeners will will learn about it sooner or later. But now, perhaps moving on to the topic of this episode, Adam, if we don't have anything else for the for the introduction. So as our listeners probably realized from the title of this episode, it is about the Wagner Group, the very infamous Wagner Group and its leader, Chief Yevgeny Prigozhin. Mm. I think this is, yeah, like I said in the very beginning, it's the kind of topic that is controversial is always you know it's the kind of topic you hear about it and you're like oh Wagner group what's up with them and you will see from the interview because in the interview we really unpack what this group is is it even a group is it a company is it a network what what kind of structure does this group have who is involved how exactly they operate how they are financed and all that and you will see that it's it's for me it's mind-blowing honestly how they built this whole thing, this structure where everything is shady, you know, it's nothing yeah. is official, yeah. nothing is done by the book. They find loopholes, they find gray zones, they escape any accountability, and it works. And it's terrifying, honestly. Yes, yes. It's, I mean, it's definitely, I, th- this is like one of those topics, I'm really glad we're, we're covering this here in, in the podcast. And uh, when I, you know, we read about Wagner Group because they are playing such an important role in uh, in the war in Ukraine for, for, for the side of Russia, but they exist, uh, they have existed already for, for quite some time, as we'll hear in the interview, and they don't operate only in Ukraine. So this is also interesting to realize that, you know, that uh, Russian interests are being pursued by this like shady group that nobody really understands. Uh, and hopefully our guest today, which I'm, I'm confident uh, does, is tries to... Uh, bring to light some of the issues surrounding Wagner Group because we hear about it a lot, but we don't really understand exactly how it works uh, and what is, uh, you know, its relationship with with the power structures in Russia as well. Absolutely. And I will say that already before the interview, we, as we sometimes do, we did some bonus questions with our guest, which will be available only to our patrons. But I want to say that actually really this time, the bonus questions were (laughs) super, super interesting because we went way deeper into specifically Russia's operations or rather, sorry, Wagner groups, but aka Russia's operations in different African countries. And I think our expert... She definitely has a wealth of knowledge on that. So she really went deep into specific examples and specific operations. So if you are considering becoming a patron of Talk Eastern Europe, I would say this is a very good moment because then you'll get access to these yeah. additional questions. Just another reason to to support the podcast because we have a lot of additional content that we provide to our patrons. Uh, if you want uh, greater in-depth knowledge, uh, for example, additional questions like this. Exactly, exactly. And I just want to say as a word of introduction, because in the interview, we did talk, like I mentioned about Evgeny Prigozhin, who is leading the Wagner Group, but we didn't say so much about his background. We spoke more about the recent years when he was already leading the Wagner Wagner Mm -hmm. Group. So just as a word of introduction, he is before he was a Russian oligarch, as they all are in <laughs> Russia, and he became quite a close confidant of uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Mm. And he was sometimes called Putin's chef because he was uh, he owns this the, like a series of restaurants and catering companies that provide services for the Kremlin. Uh, but of course, he also has a lot of other businesses going on. And what is interesting, I did go just on Wikipedia to look him up and see if there's any fun facts about him. And so apparently, according to Wikipedia, during his school years, Prigozhin aspired to be a professional cross-country skier. Wow. So I, you know, I would love in a way to to know what the world would have been like yes, had he yes. fulfilled this ambition. Because I feel like the world would have been a better place if Prigozhin was just a cross-country skier. Absolutely. Unfortunately, that dream did not come to fruition. 
exactly. Too bad exactly. we can't go back in time and try to make it happen. So uh, the like our lesson, I think, for everybody is if you have a nice passion in your childhood, just follow that and don't become a leader of a horrible paramilitary group that's right. that murders people. That's right. <laughs> that yeah. would be the morale of the story. Anyhow, so yeah, so that's just a word of introduction on Prigozhin. And now a word of introduction on our guest. I sat down with Katrina Doxy, who is the Associate Director and Associate Fellow with the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. And she focuses mostly on international and domestic terrorism and the irregular activities of countries such as Iran, Russia and China. And outside of the CSIS, she's a member of the editorial board for the Irregular Warfare Initiative at the Modern War Institute at West Point and is the treasurer of the Women's Wargaming Network. So as you can already tell, I think from this description, she is very much qualified (laughs) to speak about this. And you will hear, I'm sure, that she is very enthusiastic about this topic, meaning obviously not, not meaning that she loves Wagner Group and what they do, but she really goes deep into these topics and she knows so much about it so i hope you will enjoy this interview great uh, let's let's now go into the interview that you had uh, with uh, katrina Doxy. Welcome back to Talk Eastern Europe. This is Aga speaking and with me is our guest for this week, Katrina Doxy. Katrina, welcome to Talk Eastern Europe. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for joining, especially that we are going to discuss, I think, a very interesting and very engaging topic, also probably quite controversial or causing a lot of in a way, emotions, and that this is something that I've been willing to cover for quite some time. So I'm really glad that you agreed to join us for this interview. And the topic, as our listeners already know, is the Wagner Group and its role, first and foremost, in Ukraine, both since the 2014, well, since the start of the war in 2014, and also since the outbreak of the full-scale invasion in 2022, but also I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit more about what exactly Wagner Group is, what is its status, and potentially we could also talk about its activities in other regions of the world because it's not only active in Ukraine. So this is kind of a general overview. And with that, I just want to jump straight into my first question, which is, could you tell our listeners a bit more about these origins of the Wagner Group and its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is also quite an infamous character right now. So how did they all, how, how did Wagner Group get created and how is it in general maybe structured and how does it operate overall? Absolutely. So actually, Wagner has its origins with the 2014 invasion of Ukraine. So we've kind of come full circle now that they're they're back there again in 2022. So Wagner was created uh, in order to have a deniable force fighting in Ukraine. We hear about the quote-unquote little green men who Russia was able to deny a connection to during that 2014 invasion and the subsequent fighting. But really, we talk about Wagner as a private military company. And even in the name, it's the Wagner Group. But really, it's better to think of it less as a single company or a single entity and more as this loose network of different commercial entities, including shell companies and financial intermediaries that are all linked back to Yevgeny Prigozhin and that work in concert toward his goals, toward Moscow's goals. And it is purposefully set up to be as opaque as possible. They don't want outsiders to understand the connections, understand how the financial networking all functions and how profits and resources flow. And the other angle to this is that private military companies are technically illegal under Russian law. So Wagner does not technically exist on paper as a private military company in Russia or or really anywhere. And 
Essentially, because private military companies are banned in Russia, groups like Wagner that do continue to operate in that capacity are more or less doing so at Putin's pleasure, at the discretion of the Kremlin. And so what we see is that in their operations, even though, of course, they're driven by a sense of their own profit, certainly Prigozhin is driven by his own political ambitions, they're also largely dedicated to spreading Moscow's geopolitical goals, whether that's on the front lines of the war in Ukraine, fighting alongside Russian troops, or whether that's acting sort of as a force multiplier in other theaters, being able to carry out and pursue Russian goals and interests in uh, places like sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America as well. Thank you for this overview. And I think it's it already shows us how tricky the whole topic of the Wagner Group is because of this murky nature of how it operates and that it's not really known in a way. It's, you can't really trace very easily who finances it and how and what's what's happening with it. So I'm wondering maybe in more in practical terms and what Wagner Group has been doing recently so you mentioned that they were created around the time when the first well, when the when the war started in Ukraine in 2014 so what was their role back then how were they involved and has that changed since the start of the full scale invasion and what is their current role in the full scale invasion of Ukraine so Wagner has long completed a variety of different paramilitary tasks and has really served as in a regular warfare arm of the Russian state, despite not officially having that on paper link. And that was really the role that they were carrying out in 2014. And even in the early days of the 2022 invasion, um, being more of the flexible, deniable, irregular force. A really interesting thing that we've seen now over the course of the past year, and as Russia has experienced this series of failures and setbacks in Ukraine is that Wagner is now operating much more like an actual military unit. They're unofficial. They're not part of the Russian military. And in fact, we've seen a significant amount of competition between them and the military and certainly personality clashes between Prigozhin and various military leaders. But at this point in time, Wagner is more or less operating as an informal unit of the Russian military and is taking the lead on the front lines, particularly in locations like Bakhmut. Right. Yeah. I think even just today or yesterday, I read that uh, Prigozhin was uh, in a way accusing Gerasimov and, and Shoigu, so the defense minister, of not giving enough funding to or enough equipment rather i think to the to the wagner group and that because of that soldiers or mercenaries with the wagner group are dying so you can see that there's definitely a lot of also politics going on between them and just uh, mutual animosities i think they are they are very much there exactly and i i would say too you know as the invasion and the subsequent war has very much not gone as easily and as quickly as Moscow expected. Um, and both the military and Wagner are, you know, suffering these setbacks. They're struggling to get equipment and ammunition. They're struggling to get recruits out on the field, certainly struggling to get recruits with real experience, um, being forced to resort to recruiting in uh, prisons and among other really untrained labor. Um, there, There is this competition that I think has been exacerbated by the fact that it's not just that the Russian military is hesitant to give these things to Wagner, is hesitant to supply them with the ammunition or equipment, but the military itself is struggling to have adequate supplies. And so there's actually what was meant to be a force multiplier has actually turned into competition for resources. 
Yes, although you wouldn't get that impression from Putin's speech that happened earlier this week. It all seemed very happy and successful and the, the country is developing very well and has all it <laughs> needs for its victory in Ukraine. Of course. But oh well, never mind. Not much not many interesting things were said in that interview, so we don't need to discuss it. Uh, sorry, not in that interview in that speech, so we don't need to discuss it. But uh yeah, so in terms of this Wagner Group status vis-a-vis -vis the Russian army. So you mentioned that now it in a way de facto operates as a military unit, but from the point of view of just in general, Russian the structure of the Russian army, and also from the point of view of the international law, there is a big difference between the people working for the Wagner Group and the actual soldiers. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more in terms of what is the, the nuance in terms of these statuses. Absolutely. So really, they're able to coordinate with the military and to more or less operate in line with the military's goals and movements along the front lines because of that connection at the top level to Putin and to the broader Russian war effort. So that's through through Prigozhin and through his um, other leaders under him. But really, Wagner is separate from the Russian military. It's not officially connected to the military. It doesn't even technically, uh, you know, exist or have this connection to the Russian state, despite the fact that we have recently had Prigozhin come out and notably admit his connection to Wagner. And so this has actually always been one of the things that has been so appealing to Moscow in using private military companies like Wagner. It's the fact that not only are the actions of Wagner things that Russia can't be held accountable for on the international stage. It's much harder to connect the Russian government back to things like illegal activity, human rights abuses, because they can deny that Wagner actually represents the Russian government. But there's also this element of a lack of accountability to the Russian people and to the troops themselves. So even though typically the, a member of the Wagner group is better paid than uh, just a recruit in the Russian army, it's actually much cheaper for Moscow to rely on Wagner to carry out these missions. And so that, in part because it's just a completely different structure, uh, but also Wagner is largely self-financing in its various activities. And so it's cheaper for Moscow to use Wagner for many of these missions. And when soldiers die, they have no accountability to those families. They don't need to pay out any kind of support to the families. They don't need to answer any questions from the families if personnel from Wagner die in action, if they go missing. There were actually many reports from the 2014 uh, invasion of Ukraine where, as fighting went on, the bodies of Wagner troops would show up back in their hometowns in Russia just riddled with shrapnel. And they would appear overnight with no explanation as to what happened to them, where they were, anything. And it was difficult for their families to actually get any kind of answers and certainly couldn't get any kind of compensation or support from the Russian government. And so I think that's a big, um, that's a big draw for Russia, that they don't need to have the expenditure either while the troops are fighting or to their families afterward. They don't need to answer any questions about them. And um, certainly on the international level, not being held accountable for the actions they do. That said, Wagner has always operated in close coordination with the Russian military and Ministry of Defense, as well as Russian intelligence services. So we see that Wagner actually operates a training base near Molkino, Russia, that is co-located with a Spetsnaz training base. Uh, satellite imagery has shown that it's right next door. They share training facilities. So there's clearly cooperation on that front. But we've also seen in the course of various deployments, particularly those where Wagner is coming in to assist a different partner government in a place like Africa, 
Uh, we see cases where Wagner is working directly alongside Russian military troops, as they've done um, in the early days of their deployment to the Central African Republic. Um, we've seen them working in coordination with Russian intelligence personnel in deployments uh, such as Madagascar. And so this close coordination has always been there. And it's sort of a, if it's advantageous to clearly work with them and clearly share resources, share knowledge, work toward the same mission, they'll do so. But when it's advantageous to deny that connection and remove accountability from Russia, they'll also do that as well. Right. Yeah. I think it's it's very interesting how, in a way, we all know about these very close connections with the Russian army and with the Kremlin and all that. But indeed, it does leave some kind of a gray zone for Russia to just deny accountability and pretend like, no, actually, we have nothing to do with them. You mentioned that Wagner is mostly self-financed i'm assuming that it does receive also some money from from the kremlin but do we know anything else about how exactly it is financed and like who you know i don't know who is involved in in this structure yeah so it this is one of the frustrating things about how wagner is structured right so because they are purposefully as opaque as possible it's really hard to track the exact the exact financial flows and how all of this support works. But we do know that they get a significant amount of revenue, both from, of course, the negotiated payments for their services in countries where they're coming in to assist the government. But you know, even in those cases, the real profit comes from the fact that they're typically gaining access to natural resources in the countries where they're operating outside of Europe. So in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, it has become quite common that Bogner will exchange its services for access to natural resources, largely through mining concessions. So this is typically gold, gemstones, in some cases, energy resources. And then they're able to smuggle raw gold or the gemstones out of the country into markets where people won't really ask very many questions. They're able to liquidate that into cash. Um, and use that to continue to bolster their own profits, uh, bolster the income of oligarchs like Prigozhin, and support the Russian government. And this has actually been something that we've seen really significant over the past year, not just for funding Wagner itself, but for helping uh, high-up political individuals in Russia and the Russian government avoid the full impact of the Western sanctions that have been levied against Moscow for its invasion of Ukraine. Because even though we have this historically unprecedented level of sanctions and financial punishment imposed on Russia for its invasion of Ukraine, they're able to, for instance, bring gold out of Sudan into markets like the UAE and liquidate that into cash or they're able to use the gold to just bolster Russia's gold supply. And so, of course, that doesn't fully, fully resolve the financial trouble that they've found themselves in. But it is a way that they've found to blunt the effect of those sanctions. Uh, but across across all of these countries, they've established different shell companies that are linked back to really the hub of this Wagner network that are able to process those uh, natural resources generate profits. Uh, and so really, in addition to the the influence that Wagner is spreading in these places, in addition to its service to Moscow as a force multiplier, it's also a profit generator. It's really incredible when you think about it, how, how this network works and how it works for them, as in, because it's really... Yeah, it's really difficult to to prove anything or to catch them. You mentioned, we already talked a little bit about this, that this is also the reason why using PMCs, if we want to call it this way, such as Wagner Group, is very useful for, for Putin and for the Kremlin. And I'm guessing, I don't know if you could elaborate a bit more on this, because I suppose there really is no way, from the point of view, let's say, of the international law to connect them or to hold 
can, can we somehow hold Wagner Group accountable on the international stage, for example, for the different human rights violations that we see that they are accused of? Is there any way that they can be held accountable? So that's been very difficult. And I, I think it should be acknowledged that it's generally difficult uh, on the international stage to hold parties accountable for human rights violations to begin with. But particularly since we have a group that is in this deniable gray space, it's difficult to bring back any kind of punishment or accountability on Russia. And we also have this angle where in countries where Wagner is deploying to assist a local government uh, with their security goals and ends up carrying out various human rights abuses. So I'm thinking of countries like the Central African Republic, where human rights abuses have been widely documented by the UN Security Council and other NGOs, or Mali, where after uh, entering the country in December of 2021, Wagner has been accused of various uh, indiscriminate killings of civilians, human rights abuses, widespread massacres uh, that they've carried out in combination with the local Malian army. In countries like that, you also have the tension where you have a complicit local government. So particularly in these countries like Mali, where you have a military junta that has gained power through a coup and is now taking on more of an autocratic bend that has a, a local military that itself has a long history of human rights abuses. It's almost more of a feature than a bug that Wagner is also carrying out human rights abuses or that Russia as a partner is tolerant of these human rights abuses because this allows the local government to use Wagner as a support. And in many cases, we think about it as coup proofing that they're concerned less about the security of the country as a whole and more concerned about the security of their regime. And so Wagner can come in, help to support their regime. They're not going to hold the regime accountable for human rights abuses. Sure, Wagner may carry out human rights abuses of their own. And of course, as outside parties, as Western countries, we look on and we're horrified by this. Civilians in these countries are horrified by this, but the government in the country is not jumping to actually try to hold them accountable because their needs are already being met. That's just so interesting. Again, how how it's just it's incredible. Like you can always find loopholes and you can do all sorts of horrible, horrible things. And yet somehow it works and nobody can do anything about it. But sort of thinking about all of this, how how smartly in a way Wagner Group operates and how widespread this whole network, as you said, is since it's not just one entity or one company. If we want to play a little bit in terms of trying to think about what might happen in the future, specifically when it comes to the status of the Wagner Group in Russia and the status of Prigozhin himself, we already mentioned this, that he has a pretty significant role right now and he seems to be on par in a way with some of the more high-ranking officials in Russia. So would would we say that it's possible that Prigozhin or the Wagner Group or Prigozhin with the use of Wagner Group could somehow become a more significant independent force also politically speaking and the kind of force that could potentially influence the future power struggle in Russia and, you know, be a bit of, I don't know, kingmakers or or whatever you want to call it? Well, I'd say that that definitely appears to be Prigozhin's goal at this point in time. I think certainly we'll have to wait to see how successful he is with that, particularly as he continues to either make enemies for himself among other oligarchs and military and political leaders in Russia or just reaffirm enemies that he may have already have. Uh, may have already had in the country, but we really have seen that he's used the war in Ukraine and Wagner's active, heavy role in the war as a way of boosting his own political profile and really trying to carve out space for himself in the political apparatus. So one thing that I think is really helpful for thinking about this and really kind of pinning down where his mind might be at at this point in time is the fact that in the fall of 2022, 
Prigozhin finally came out and openly admitted his involvement with the Wagner Group, that he's its leader, he was involved in its founding. And that may seem insignificant because we've all kind of known for a long time that he was at the head of it, but it actually is a huge sea change in how he talks about Wagner, how he presents himself and Wagner presents itself to the world. So prior to this admission, Prigozhin had actually gone so far as to bring lawsuits against researchers or media outlets that alleged his connection. This was absolutely denied. And suddenly, last fall, you get him openly admitting this. Shortly thereafter, he's appearing in propaganda videos. There are videos of him directly recruiting new Wagner personnel at prisons in Russia. And about a month after his admission, Wagner establishes its first headquarters building that is notably located in St. Petersburg. So it's not just that they're, you know, they're growing in profile, they're establishing a headquarters, it's on Russian soil. And this is significant because, as we talked about before, PMCs like Wagner are technically illegal in Russia. They're able to operate because they are carrying out the will of Putin and, you know, Moscow's geopolitical goals. But the fact that they are illegal gives Putin an incredible amount of leverage over them so that if they fall out of favor, if they violate his wishes or his goals, he can essentially make them disappear. And the fact now that Prigozhin is willing to be so open about his involvement, he feels daring, they're establishing a headquarters building and you know, running development activities on Russian soil, I think this points to a tremendous amount of confidence in what his current position is. We've seen over the past year that his relationship with Putin has evolved. They've grown much closer. Putin has increasingly relied on Prigozhin, often at the expense of other oligarchs or military leaders who he deemed to be responsible for some of the failures in Ukraine. And so even though we do now see these sometimes very public clashes between Prigozhin and people like Gerasimov or other leaders within the Russian military, I think that we've definitely seen Prigozhin's political goals manifesting, and we see that he has a tremendous amount of confidence in how he is currently positioned. And I have a feeling that we're going to continue to see him try to jockey for more power because in his mind, coming out of Ukraine, no matter what happens on the battlefield, an ideal scenario would leave him in a better political situation in a, you know, a position where he has more power, more influence, and is positioned to continue to grow afterward. Yeah, no, that's again, this is just fascinating. I'm sure we're going to hear much more about him as time passes. Uh, because, I mean, although I think in, in Russia, sometimes you, you have these personas that kind of like rise almost to the top and then they sometimes just disappear. We forget about them. But here, I think because he's not just a politician or just a singular person, he has this whole structure behind him that is playing such a crucial role. I think I would agree that he might indeed play quite a quite an important role in the future so we'll see we'll see about that uh well Katrina thanks this has been great I was wondering if you still have a couple of minutes for some additional questions uh, that we could discuss uh, specifically for our patrons absolutely fantastic so I'll to the listeners listening to the main interview thank you all very much for listening and Katrina and I are now gonna move on to some bonus questions for our patrons That was Agnieszka's interview with Katrina Doxy uh, from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thank you, Aga, for that interview. You had uh, some really great questions, and her answers were really fascinating. Uh, and before we close out the episode, I wanted to ask if you had any uh, reactions or uh, kind of concluding thoughts after the interview that you had with Katrina. Well, first of all, I already said that in the introduction, but just 
you can see from the interview how murky the whole the whole story of Wagner yeah. Group and everything they do is. Uh, but I, in a way, I am I am impressed. I am impressed with how they do it and how they manage to just make it work. Mm. I found it very interesting. Katrina mentioned it, I think, and then we explore it a bit more in the bonus questions as well. The way they self-finance themselves using resources that they get access to during their missions in the different African countries and how they then just sell this stuff elsewhere and get money from that yeah. and then they use it to murder people so i think you know the but on the on the other hand i think we shouldn't just assume that okay this is how it is and we cannot do anything about it i think we should still look for ways to hold them accountable to cut off their resources to make sure that they cannot sell this stuff and then get money from it so it's you know i think we should still aim to find a way to address issues such as the Wagner group because they might not be the only well they are not the only ones they might be one of the most notorious groups but this is a whole network a whole in a way zone of operation where mm -hmm. states are using groups like this to avoid any accountability for their actions and for their human rights violations and it shouldn't be this way so I think it might be obviously a quite a daunting task when you look at it but I think the conclusion should be that we cannot let this stand because it's just absolutely unacceptable. Yeah, I think what's, you know, for me, it's hard to believe that this Wagner group, you know, was formed in 2014. So we're almost like 10 years ago and has basically flown under the radar for a long time. You know, nobody was really paying attention to it, uh, to what it was doing in, in countries like uh, African countries. Of course, it kind of emerged a little bit more as a, as a, a force in Syria, and people started understanding more how Russia uses these like uh, these types of um, groups, uh, particularly the Wagner PMC, uh, in order to like deny you know, its activities in certain areas and uh, basically institutionalizing the whole little green men uh, scenarios that they that they used in uh, uh, in Crimea back in 2014. And now we see that it has really grown into like this monster. And I think the big question is, and this is what you know we talked about in, in the interview as well. Uh, but really, what what end to what end will this all go? And Prigozhin has it appears appears that he has uh, political ambitions or some sort of ambitions for power in Russia. And uh, I think what is interesting and in what Katrina said in the interview is that the you know these types of organizations are actually illegal, uh, officially illegal. So there's this uh, you know always this kind of backdoor that Putin, if, if Prigozhin gets too powerful, P Putin can use and, and try to shut down Wagner Group because of the fact that officially this organization should not even exist. Uh, so I think, you know, it'll be really interesting uh, to see how the the power struggle plays out in Russia and, you know, depending on how the situation in Ukraine goes. And I think, you know, eventually signs are pointing that Russia will not achieve its goals in Ukraine. Uh, and that will put a lot of pressure on the current power structures and may open some opportunities for people like Prigozhin, maybe there's others, to try to make some sort of power grab. And if that happens, I think we have some chaos. And uh, and this is, you know, some of it will be self-made. And we have, you know, it's good we have uh, people like Katrina here uh, on the podcast to help, under help us understand and explain how all these different dynamics play out. Indeed. And again, this is something that I think we explored most in the bonus questions. So once mm. again, I encourage everybody to sign up on our Patreon and listen to the bonus questions. But we also talked about the consequences of the war in Ukraine for the Wagner group, because the war has really impacted the the group in terms of its structure and the kind of people that are fighting for the group. It's yeah. perhaps not as before it used to be really a very kind of like professional mercenaries right, and they right. were very well prepared with very good equipment but of course the war has i think restrained everybody's resources including the wagner groups yeah so we talk a little bit more about what that might mean for the wagner group in the future and how it might impact also its missions in other countries so once again i think that's an interesting conversation we had and this is something that we should observe and pay attention to yep. later yep. on as well Absolutely. And just a closing thought. Uh, it's just uh, before we close out the episode. I, for me, it was really shocking to hear how they just treat the you know their dead, uh, the people who have fallen in in battle, uh, and how they 
would just, you know, bodies of these uh, mercenaries would just show up in their hometowns. Uh, no explanation what happened. You know, they just the families have n- no compensation, nothing like this. And it's really just shocking how the Wagner group uh, and, and Russian forces in general. I mean, we hear a lot of really stories of just just denying uh, their soldiers' losses and uh, families are kind of left without any answers or any support. It's it's just shocking. I agree. And on that pretty depressing note, <laughs> I don't know if you, Adam, have anything else or shall we just move to our announcements? I think we can close out, yeah, with the announcements. Let me begin by just saying if you like the podcast and you enjoy listening to it, we have other ways to show your support if you're not ready to become a patron. Uh, but we will get to that in a moment. But uh, please do give us a five-star rating on the app that you're using. Uh, subscribe to us so you know when there are uh, subsequent episodes. And uh, if you'd like, also check us out on our website. We have a home online at www.talkeasterneurope.eu. Uh, and you can send us uh, your messages, your feedback. We love to hear from our listeners. And, of course, follow us on Twitter. Uh, Agnieszka Widoszewska, Adam Reichert. We are there. Easy to find. Yeah, if you manage to spell my surname, which many people <laughs> don't, but it's fine. You can just Google us and then copy paste. There you go. And yeah, we also have a Facebook group, which is Talk Eastern Europe Podcast. So you can follow us there as well. We post some information about new episodes there, but also it's in a way it's an open group. So people also sometimes post some interesting offers or publications or just things of interest related to the region. And yeah, as we mentioned also in the beginning of this episode, we have a patron page, which is where all our benefits live. And so you can go to www.patreon.com slash Talk Eastern Europe, and you'll see that there's different tiers there. They start from as little as $2 a month or whatever the equivalent in euros is these days. And if you, depending on the tier that you sign up for, you get access to exclusive content, access to online meetups and live streams. You get some sweet deals for the New Eastern Europe magazine, both the online archive and the printed editions. And you might also get our lovely Talk Eastern Europe bottle, which I hear is on its way to my place as well. That's right. Sent a couple out uh, last week. So in, including yours, Agnieszka, it's, it's on the way. Amazing. I will make sure to take pictures and send them to everybody as proof of life, (laughs) proof of the bottle's (laughs) life. So yeah, please do go and check it out because it helps us a ton. We use this money to buy equipment that we use. We use it to pay for some subscriptions for different platforms and sites that we need to use to produce the podcast. So it really, it always goes towards something I believe worthy (laughs) of uh, of your money <laughs> absolutely and uh there is one more benefit that our uh, that our patron supporters do get uh and that's the shout out of the podcast uh, shout out of our patrons uh, supporting the podcast and i have the the honor and pleasure to do it this time around so i just want to say hello and thank you to all of our supporters out there including daniel yurai luke susie david daniel carolina percy rsj michael anais Olaf, CB, Klaus, Plamen, Sean, Naomi, JP, Elise, Sean, Urs, Ian, Sophia, Wilhelm, David, Erica, Janos, Jason, Mark, Stephanie, and Pierre. Thank you so much for your support. As always, uh, we also have, uh, we recently organized a meetup uh, or a recording of one of our, our interviews and invited our patrons to join along. Uh, so there are a lot of, uh, lot of benefits and additional ways that you can be involved in our little community here at Talk Eastern Europe. Indeed. Thank you all so very much. And I think with that, we're going to close off this episode and we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Talk to you soon. Bye.